Hello and welcome to this bird information podcast. My name is Mel Brook. I'm the Patient and Public Engagement Programme Director for BIRD. Today we'll be talking about the Osteoarthritis NICE guidelines and my guest is Mr Christopher Marty. Chris is a chartered physiotherapist who also holds various advisory roles within rheumatology organisations. He's going to talk us through the guidelines and walk us through the advice within them. This is part one in a short two-part series, so please do make sure to join us for both episodes. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Mel. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I thought probably a good idea if we start off, if you could give us a little bit about, you know, your professional background and and your interests. Yes, of course. So um, my name is Chris Marty. I'm a chartered physiotherapist. I'm a vice chair and trustee of a charity known as the Arthritis and Musculoskeletal Alliance. That's an umbrella term for 35 plus organisations, some of which are patient bodies and some of them are professional clinician bodies. Uh, I'm also a clinical advisor for um, Versus Arthritis in their research advisory group. So very much musculoskeletal conditions and rheumatic diseases is a part of my passion. Um, And this really was sparked from my time working in rheumatology as a specialist physiotherapist in Bath at the uh, Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases. Um, obviously, this is when I came across BIRD. I'd started doing some uh, patient and public engagement work with the Bath Institute for Rheumatic Diseases. Um, and now I've moved from the hospital setting into the GP world. So that's called primary care. And my role there is a first contact physiotherapist. And essentially what that means is if anybody needs to speak to their, go to their GP uh, with a problem with knee pain, hip pain, back pain, shoulder pain, anything like that, rather than them seeing the doctor straight away, they will see me as a first contact physiotherapist. So it's seen as an advanced physiotherapist role, but I'm really privileged then to be able to give my expertise right at the starting point of anyone's healthcare journey. Yeah, and it's absolutely our privilege to have you back with us because, like you said, we've we've had you on board before at some of our events and it's really good to have you back and doing a podcast with us. So it's great that those those connections and, you know, can still exist. Thanks, Mel. So today we're going to be talking later about NICE guidelines and we're going to explain what that is. But just to start off again with a little recap on what we know about osteoarthritis, what would you say is currently known, Chris? Yeah, well, osteoarthritis is what's known as a chronic long-term condition. And Previously, the, the narrative was around it being a degenerative disease of the cartilage within the joints, so the ends of the bones when they're meeting. Um, I don't like this phrase, but it used to be very much around uh, wear and tear and always associated really with aging. Um, but now the narrative has changed. Um, the understanding of the disease is becoming much broader. And so we now know that actually inflammation has a real critical roles in the cause of somebody getting osteoarthritis. So it's not just the breakdown or or changes in the joint specifically. We do know there is this remodeling of the bone that goes on. And so it's almost a a wearing and repairing 
that's that's occurring. And it's not just, again, the ends of the bones, but actually the whole capsule around the joint, what's called the synovium or the, the lining around the joint as well. And so it really is a disorder as the joint as a whole, but linked wider inflammation. But when I use the word inflammation, Mel, it is distinct and different from that in autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. So it is still separate, but the inflammation here is deemed as chronic, comparatively low-grade inflammation that can be occurring. Mm. Yeah, and it, it's quite fascinating, really, because we then need to think as well that if we're changing the narrative from it being increasing age, getting older is there, and degeneration is there, we're moving on from that being the main factor. Actually, we now realise there are other risk factors that can be considered. Now, some of them are out of our control. One of those is that there may be a higher risk due to genetics. You know, somebody, um, family members, there may be people who do have more osteoarthritis in the family, and that might put them at a higher risk. But we know things like body composition, so metabolic diseases, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, um, but certainly obesity. So again, not just from the standpoint of perhaps putting a little bit more load through the joints, but actually that those um, those inflammatory markers that are, are raised when, when somebody is perhaps overweight or obese. And then we have to also think about previous joint injuries or, or, or joint surgery even. There is a link, for instance, people who have undergone knee keyhole surgery, arthroscopic surgery for, for a different issue, may be at higher risk of developing osteoarthritis in the future. So I think they, those are the messages that are, are newer over the previous years, but certainly not just for myself as a physiotherapist flying the flag for lifestyle medicine, but a lot of healthcare professionals will really be pushing the, the mantra of staying active for people with osteoarthritis. And we'll touch on this later, but the importance of keeping moving, because you'll know, Mel, that you know when we don't exercise, things stiffen up, we can mm. lose that mobility. Um, Absolutely. And it's really interesting. So when I'm trying to describe this to patients, um, there is a theory that, you know, we have fluid in our joints called synovial fluid. And there is a theory that some of the changes that happen in osteoarthritis mean that this fluid can almost go undertake a, a gelling phenomenon. So it's almost like um, this then becomes more of a viscous gel at times. And all we have to then think, when you're stationary for a period of time, that then just stiffens up, you know, and so classically, people will say, if I've sat down for dinner, when I then have to get up and move, my knee or my hips are really painful, and it takes me a while to, to mm. ease up into it, you know. So those are things that, again, we can educate people on, uh, reassure them that that is part and characteristic of the condition, but then give them tools as to say, why it's important then to be active, to, mm. to reduce your sitting time, to, you know, to th those sorts of things. And the last thing I think to say is that it's, whilst it's a very common condition, you know, we see lots and lots of people who have knee, hip, shoulder, osteoarthritis, for instance, but we need to remind them that actually it is still very, very debilitating, you know, and there are therefore lots and lots of barriers to moving forward with the treatments that we suggest. So the mm. treatments like uh, weight loss um, or exercise therapy being two key treatments, we know that there are lots of barriers, not least pain or fatigue, but then those, those normal barriers day-to-day -day life with time, am I gonna find the time for this? Motivation, because of course it's a long-term thing, so it's not something you can just do for a few weeks and then that's it. It's, it's trying to build a lifestyle around 
uh, a healthy lifestyle around this. So how can we as a, you know, as health professionals support patients in that shared process of healthcare to create a more sustainable uh, regime of exercise and healthy lifestyle behaviours? Mm. Thanks for sharing all that, Chris. It's really interesting to get the updates. It's very important to make that distinction between inflammation in OA and inflammation that comes with autoimmune diseases. I think it's really it's really interesting to um, to hear how you've described that, and it makes a lot of sense. I think you mentioned about staying active, which we know is something we should do, but obviously those things like you mentioned can get in the way, like pain and fatigue. I would at this point point people in the direction of our podcast that we did recently for the fibromyalgia series that doesn't necessarily only apply to people with fibromyalgia um, with Jade about activity snacking and this was about building a more sustainable way of keeping active within your day and Mm -hmm. how all these little minutes of activity can add up you know to contribute towards a more healthy sort of lifestyle and approach so it's not always about doing massive chunks of exercise is it it's about staying active keeping moving yeah yeah and Mm. I would say consistency is the biggest thing Mm. again you know there are initiatives that are out there that are fantastic in trying to engage the the general public one of those is got to try and reach 10,000 steps a day yes yeah and it's too hard (laughs) it's really unachievable for a lot of people and actually then there's that immediate sense of oh I haven't achieved that and so failure whereas we know that actually that marker in the sand it's it's really just a line in the sand that hasn't really got a lot of evidence backing it up but we do need to just think it's helpful for some but a little bit is much better than none Uh, Mm. and it just starts with a little step and then and then builds on that so that's why again speaking to your health professionals will really help personalize it to you yeah absolutely and um what you said about the synovial fluid and the joints and, and it kind of setting, that makes so much sense. It gives you such a visual way of understanding why movement is important. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that, Chris. I think we could probably go on a lot about OA, but we're not really going to drill back down into it today because we have the other podcasts. So what we are going to talk about is these guidelines that we both felt would be really interesting and probably quite important for people to understand. There's an organisation called NICE, which you'll give us a bit more information about, and they have come up with some new guidelines for treatments for OA. And we're going to start going through that a little bit, just so that people understand why they're treated in the ways they're treated. Yes, yes, yes. And exactly. And, And ultimately, the underlying thing is that guidelines are using the best evidence that we have to hand to make sure we're informed uh, and and well reasoned in our treatment options helps to standardize treatment for people as well so we've not got this you know postcode lottery that so and so is getting this treatment down in Cornwall and someone's up in uh, you know in the north of England getting this treatment so um, guidelines really do set a precedent and it means that every clinician needs to stand up and go right am I adhering to these guidelines but actually they're not just for healthcare professionals so I'll talk about that so so yes, NICE is an acronym for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Now, this in itself is a public body, part of the uh, Department of Health and Social Care, and really nationally is something that you know, has so many facets to it. So one of them I think would be interesting to say is, of course, within that they have a centre for guidelines. And, and they so they develop guidance on the promotion of good health, 
prevention of ill health um, and then appropriate treatment and care for people with specific diseases and conditions. So the one we're talking about today is the osteoarthritis guideline. Um, so we're looking at assessment and management of osteoarthritis. And that was obviously published some time ago, but has had a recent publication and update in October of last year, October 2022. And again, it's really useful to know that these things are re reviewed, updated and, and so on. So we're not uh, being stagnant. But they're responsible for clinical guidelines, public guidelines and, and social care guidelines. So really what would be deemed as the best practice um, things to try and to ad adhere to. Now, it doesn't mean, though, that everybody will come under this umbrella and say this will be perfect for them. Clinicians alongside the patient need to come to that happy medium, you know, where we're using best practice, well-informed evidence, but also the patient experience, the patient's um, symptoms, because that is going to differ from person to person. Mm -hmm. But Mel, you might be interested to know as well that they're a huge organisation. They've got uh, a centre for technology evaluation. So they look at medical technologies, surgical procedures. They've got a science, evidence and analytics directorate. So um, it really is a, a sort of a, a wide reaching organisation. Um, and actually, for any clinicians or patients that would be interested you can join committees for NICE. So all these guidelines are brought together with clinicians, academics and patients with lived experience. And you can go on their website. You can see what they're asking for. There'll be a call for, you know, a patient with experience of arthritis or a GP with expertise in heart problems. And you can apply and you could be on those guidelines. Yeah, that's really important for people to understand is that these things, these organisations or, or the guidelines that are written do involve people with the actual experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's called co-production. That's the, that's the mm. term, as you'll know, Mel. But, um, you know, once upon a time, it would have been much more, we're the clinicians, we will say that this is what the patient should have and therefore that will be the best treatment. But actually, now looking back on those sorts of um, notions you can see that that's quite you know wildly inaccurate and read the reason why things haven't perhaps worked as well as they can in, in some situations so no so particularly with armor so the arthritis and musculoskeletal alliance we have people sat around the table with lived experience who are clinicians and you can just you know you can get the priorities right and then you can tease out any issues and, and just get all those perspectives so no it's uh, it's really good and we can put links for those in our show notes. So we can put links to NICE, we can put links to Armour, and then people can go off and do their own kind of like further research on that and see if it's something they want to participate in, which is great. Fantastic. Yeah. So the guideline, this was uh, updated last year and there's lots of different sections to it. So I think we were going to try and work our way through each section. So I think the, the kind of the first one was about the assessment of osteoarthritis and the diagnosis. What what does it say about that, Chris? Yeah, so um, like I said a minute ago, Mel, just to say um, the guideline is there for healthcare prof professionals. Mm. It's also there for commissioners and people who actually hold the purse strings for what treatments are available in, in different parts of the, the country. Um, but it is there and it says it in black and white. It's there for people with osteoarthritis, their families and their carers. So just because... Uh, there, there isn't a huge amount of medical jargon in these things. So I really do think it's open access. People could go and have a read, obviously, perhaps after listening to this to this mm. podcast. 
but it's just important because I really, really think education and being informed gives so much power to the individual, which is why I really, really promote it. But so the diagnosis. So we're thinking that we know that osteoarthritis is a, a condition of the joint. Um, it occurs in practice. It's saying that uh, three things particularly. OK, so you can diagnose osteoarthritis in somebody who is over 45 years of age who has activity-related joint pain and then has either no morning stiffness when they wake up, so no stiffness feeling in the joint, or very little morning stiffness in the joint, so that would be quantified as less than half an hour. Now, if we go over, unpick those things, so they've, they've put a line in the sand again of 45 and above, principally because those younger than that are less likely to have some of those changes, and that is because there are degenerative changes, processes going on. You can't, like I said, we can't say it's all to do with that, but there are some of those degenerative changes. That's mm -hmm. more common than 45 and upwards. Activity-related pain is therefore the opposite of what we see in inflammatory conditions like spondyloarthritis, which is worse with rest and better with movement. Whereas this, osteoarthritis, would be worse, say, for instance, when you're walking up some stairs, uh, when you're bending or crouching, squatting, rising from a chair, any activity uh, like that, and then conversely, generally gets better mm. when you rest. Mm. Yeah. One thing to really say is that this then is what's called a clinical diagnosis. So I could speak to someone over the phone, assess them in person, look at their range of motion and, and strength and things like that around the joints. And then I could diagnose osteoarthritis without having an x-ray. Right. Now this, yeah, it's quite, it's quite an interesting thing because we know that x-rays will show the bones and they will show any of those perhaps degenerative changes. And we have to remember, though, that x-rays are not to be routinely used, essentially, because when we scan people, there may well be changes that aren't causing the pain that people have. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. the reason being is that they say specifically we don't need to have an x-ray. And also, we don't necessarily need to keep repeating x-rays mm. if somebody's had one. So when people come to me, for instance, in the GP surgery, and um, they've never had a scan of their knee, they've never presented to the doctors before with knee pain, I will assess them, talk through what's going on. And if I think, actually, this does sound very much like osteoarthritis, then I would say, this is the likely diagnosis. I think we should work on this. And here's a raft of things we can work through together. And obviously, options I can signpost them to. Mm. Um, so I think that's the fundamental thing. We have to say that, Mel, x-rays do have a, a role. Uh, so I think when we're first diagnosing the condition, we don't necessarily need to have that. One of the things we would consider it, though, is if somebody has what they call atypical features, so not less typical features of osteoarthritis. So somebody who, for instance, is having issues out of that remit, so much younger than 45, and we're thinking, oh, this doesn't actually fit. The, the textbook or characteristic features of osteoarthritis or hang on they're having waking with uh, in the nights a lot with the pain when they're at rest and they're just sleeping or they're unwell things that we might allude us to more serious conditions such as uh, cancers or infections other conditions that we might need to evaluate more closely but mm. you can be reassured that ultimately every healthcare professional is on their mind to think does this fit with what I'm, I'm expecting to see for somebody with arthritis? And um, most of the time, that, that is something we, we see because those other things are quite rare. 
So not necessarily needing an x-ray if the clinician has decided that it kind of ticks all the boxes for osteoarthritis, but maybe having an x-ray or some imaging if there's something else they think might be causing the pain and everything. Yeah, exactly that, really. So if we're worried about something else, you know, something more serious, then we would do something. You might do the x-ray. X-rays. But you have to also remember that people can come to me. I might have seen somebody last February with this, diagnose them saying clinically, I think you have osteoarthritis. Here's the things to work on. It goes without saying as well, Mel, it's great to see people in person because if I'm assessing their joint, I can, as a clinician, I can feel that, okay, there's some stiffness there or that's where your pain is. That as well as your subjective, what you're telling me, that the objective clinical exam can also then marry that together. So then Mm -hmm. I'm more confident as well in diagnosing that. But if they're coming back or it's not, um, they've tried things and it's worsening, or again, over a period of time, it's really gone downhill. And then we're thinking about escalating treatment, you know, so we're thinking, okay, we're going to think, go beyond those first line treatments, then you might want to think, I might want to now evaluate the joint and see the extent from a radiographic perspective, and then try and again, see if see how that fits um, with the whole picture. But again, that's where we open a can of worms, because we can have people with really debilitating hip knee pain, and then we could scan their joints and find that they've actually got mild or minor arthritis changes. And um, conversely, we've seen people who don't have much pain at all, but actually on x-ray, they've got quite severe changes. And so that's mm-hmm. why we, I think we need to be mindful that um, there's no one test that can categorically say you need this and that now. It's, that's what I mean. So we can't say it's a tick box. These are guidelines. And then we actually have to really yeah, make work it around and work around the patient. Yeah. And then there's a section in the guidelines about the management. So we start off with the non-pharmaceutical management. So not medications. What What's the guideline mm-hmm. saying about that? Yeah, so um, this would be, as a physiotherapist, my bread and butter with uh, non, non-drug treatments, okay? And, and ultimately, the, the guidelines are saying this, this, is, this is the strongest, you know, the strongest research evidence is around these treatment options. And the, the first one being what they call therapeutic exercise. So some form of exercise. And they actually say for all people with osteoarthritis, they should be offered therapeutic exercise tailored to their needs so Mm. that uh, again might be something that's guided to something around the joint or I've noticed or somebody else has noticed they've got particular weakness around the joint so we need to tailor strengthening exercises to that Mm -hmm. Um, but also alongside that um, again at times I might say here's the advice and guidance here's some exercises I think off you go and see how you manage yourself but there are um, you know a, a subset of people who will better manage from supervised exercise Mm. And that might be signposted to, I mean, there are, there are so many options, Mel. You know, one of the things is called Escape Pain. It's an initiative, um, an exercise and, and education program for people with osteoarthritis. That runs for six weeks, twice a week. And that's in the local communities. Um, you can even do that. You can self-refer to that online and do that yourself. But really speaking to your healthcare professional, there are lots of things to, to get going with, essentially. But one of the things I would say to the listeners is the European League Against Rheumatism, so called ULAR, they released some really useful exercise guidelines in 2018. Uh, And for me, this is what I use when I'm trying to talk about physical activity with patients. Because 
we will all have our own things that we like doing. It might be swimming, it might be walking, it might be cycling, and we'll have some things that we don't really like doing. Okay, but what we need to think is, is the physical activity that I'm doing, the exercise as well, which is then more targeted and specific, is that well-rounded? And am I fully encompassing all the four pillars that are suggested by people like you, La? Mm-hmm. So if I, if I may, I'll quickly yeah. just say, so one of them is cardiovascular or aerobic exercise. That is your walking, but perhaps brisk walking to get a little bit more out of breath. There are in different intensities we need to think about, but um, cycling, swimming, anything aerobic that gets the heart and lungs pumping. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people know that one. Okay. Yeah. Then the next one, they might think oh, I should probably do some stretches. So the next one is flexibility. And that's because around the joint, we have muscles and tendons, which we need to ensure we're in maximizing their flexibility. Because if the joints itself is becoming stiff and restricted, and then we're not moving and actually our muscles around that are also becoming stiff and restricted, then we're actually, we're going to be in for a double whammy really, aren't we? So if there are joint changes, we can focus on the muscles around it and think about flexibility. So the last two areas though, are sometimes I would say under underutilized. So one of them is strengthening. So resistance training and strength training, sometimes seen as a I'm going to have to go to the gym or, or, you know, there's lots of connotations with strength exercise, but there's loads of things people can do at home. There's guidance that they can do without equipment. And really it's our jobs as again, healthcare professionals to um, make sure it's accessible and and easy to do and not fearful, you know, remove that Mm -hmm. fear from people doing it. So we've got three there. We've talked about cardiovascular, aerobic, strengthening, flexibility. And then the last one is, it's a fancy name is neuromotor. But that means your balance. Balance, yeah. And it's really key then if we're thinking about the fact that we've got people over the age of 45, there is a link to increasing age. So more people will have osteoarthritis as they get older. Then balance issues and falls and things like that come into play as well. So I really just speak to people and surprising, honestly, Mel, I'll speak to people and say, no, I'm great with my stretches and my walking, but actually I don't do any strengthening. or Somebody loves going to do their strength training, but really lacks their flexibility and, and, and those sort of things. So it just gives people a real, it gives them an opportunity of choice and allows them to, to try a few things. So, so that's the sort of thing that it says around therapeutic exercise. A couple of things are in there, caveats. We talked to barriers to exercising before, but yeah. we know that there's a likelihood that actually their joint pain may increase when they start exercise. Right. So that's just something to be mindful of. You know, um, I always say that when you start a program, I, I tend to give people um, progressions of their exercise, but also regressions. So things yeah. that if it's too much, it's either simpler and less challenging. Yeah. And then you can build back up. But commonly we'll see that people, you know, doing regular and consistent exercise, even though it may be initially causing pain or discomfort, it's going to be beneficial for the joints. And I think, again, trying to remind people that, pain does not mean damage yeah Um, so again it's around finding that balance you can be guided by pain we certainly shouldn't be saying push through pain if you're wincing and in tears you know with the the severity we shouldn't be pushing through that but if there's a little bit of discomfort and it's unlikely to be damaging uh, and so it's it's going to get easier as, as you go on 
it fits in with what you were saying earlier about the um, the joint settling and needing to keep them moving. And then when you first start moving them, they might ache a bit more. But if you then continue to keep them moving, they'll ache less eventually. It's that kind of mm. thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly that. And the brilliant thing about you know the human body is that it is really resilient. People are often surprised at just how how much fitter and stronger mm. and more flexible they can become. Mm. You know, and and we've got to think about that. We're talking about osteoarthritis here, a very common debilitating condition. But we know that physical activity and exercise is as important in other um, debilitating long-term conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic mm. arthritis. Mm. All these things which have similar and different challenges. Fundamentally, um, a lot of the time, some forms of exercise being catered to the individual is, is fantastic. And But what I like about it is we're talking about physical health the mental health will be completely intertwined with this. And yeah. the, the thing I see is when people say, I can do that, or I actually enjoy that, and it becomes tangible, you, you can then see that people like to see that progress. And you're going to have flares. There'll be times when actually it didn't go right that week, but to show yourself that you're resilient and then can, can mm. get back on track with the support of people that you need to reach out to, mm. I think it's really, um, really fascinating and re- really motivating for people. Yeah, I absolutely agree because that feeling of you have got some control, you can make a difference. You know, I think many people understand that there's association between some activity and exercise and maybe being outdoors that um, increases your sense of well-being. Um, You know, it improves your sense of what choices you might have in life and that, you know, your world's not getting smaller and smaller. So, yes, absolutely interwoven. And we talked about earlier on, we mentioned, you know, there are things that people can choose as well within this non-pharma sort of management section, which is the the weight loss, which we've talked about. Um, What other kinds of things are out there, Chris, that people could try? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, just to touch on the weight loss, that is that is because, um, you know, we need to make sure that. So weight, weight loss is something that is very important. And actually there is we know there's a stigma associated for people being overweight because actually. Um, again, obesity in itself is not very well understood by the general population, I would say. You know, I think a lot of people think it is just down to diet and exercise, but actually it's much, much broader than that. And, and mm. particularly things like other health conditions, uh, drugs that people may take causing weight gain and those other things. So it's important that to explain to people that actually even losing 5%, 10% of their body weight will, will make a huge, huge difference. And they need to be supported with their, their weight loss goals so I think that's the sort of thing that we need to, to to help people with and the reason I didn't want to skirt over that is because actually re- realistically exercise therapy and weight loss are probably the two largest things that come out right. of this guideline to say this is what we really need to focus on mm. um, but yeah there are some other things that we can talk about so one of the things is a thing called manual therapy so that is things like uh, soft tissue massage mobilization of the joints which a clinician would do or manipulation of the joints it's important to remember that it says only to be considered as an adjunct so first of all definitely not on its own for the treatment of of this condition and so only alongside exercise therapy and they have actually said only for people with uh, hip or knee osteoarthritis alongside exercise right so they've been quite specific with that again though it states that we we need to explain to people that 
there isn't enough evidence to support its use alone. And again, for, for me, being a physiotherapist who, you know, has been taught at university the skills of using manual therapy, I think the one thing to consider in, in this context is that osteoarthritis is a long-term condition that we're trying to give people control over what they can do with their mm-hmm. body. And that would therefore be encouraging active treatments like getting out, moving, uh, getting fitter and stronger. And manual therapy can often be seen as a, a more passive treatment where you would think I need to go and see somebody to get help with mobilization or manual therapy. Mm. And, and you've, so you've just got to be mindful with that narrative thinking, because if with anything in healthcare, if you think I must go to somebody to get this rather than. I can do this myself with these tools. I think that's that's something that just needs to be needs to be discussed. So it's kind of an added extra. I mean, it's natural, isn't it? To so say you've got your knees aching, it's natural for you to self massage that knee and sort of. And then it's very soothing, and it's yeah. it's going to see someone for therapeutic massage is a step beyond that. You may or may not need. Mm, yeah, and it, and it it certainly doesn't rule it out completely. So I don't mm. want to say you know I certainly no. don't want to say that. But again, we have to think what is what is accessible for, to people as well, because oftentimes if you're going to somebody to get treatment like that, then it, it may not be offered as much in in free healthcare settings. And so Absolutely. it might be in private settings. And and so uh, you then have to think what are the aspects to consider when you're when you're doing that and and how long for, you know, mm. uh, and, and at what point do you then say, you know, I can now carry on. Uh, doing the the management I, I think of it so it's um it is certainly a contentious part I would say of, of the guidelines uh, but certainly nice have looked through all the evidence and suggested that it, it cannot be used as a, a single standalone modality no it really needs to be alongside therapeutic exercise so that's saying that's as an adjunct really but there are a few things that they do say categorically do not offer okay yeah. so two of those things if, if I may so one of them is um, acupuncture. Right. So it does say here, do not offer acupuncture or dry needling to manage osteoarthritis. Right. And is this yes. is quite a change, is it? Um, it's, it was uh, mentioned, I think, in the 2014 guidelines. I'd have to get those up again, actually. But it, it's something that they've said that essentially they don't feel that the evidence is not weighted well enough. It's, it's mm. low quality evidence, essentially, to say mm-hmm. that. And so, again, people who are being guided by this, you know, all clinicians guided by this guideline need to be saying, actually, I shouldn't then be offering acupuncture specifically mm-hmm. for to the management of osteoarthritis. It's interesting as well, because when you speak to patients who have been and had acupuncture, you know, of course, some people come and say it was fantastic. It yeah. was really helpful for me. And, and I really had that. But again, I've had people who have said I went for 20, 30 sessions, you know, over a long period of time and it never changed anything. So I think we need to be mindful that, of course, there'll always be treatments that some people will um, get the benefit yeah. from, you know. Um, but the evidence that we have suggests we shouldn't offer acupuncture and And we are talking about in a clinical setting so I mean what you do outside your clinical setting is kind of a choice isn't it personal choice and that's it yeah 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 so these guidelines for you know for the listeners and patients who are listening should should think okay so I know that actually when I go and see Chris my physiotherapist I know that if he's read the guidelines he won't be saying let me get you in for acupuncture 
because actually it's not been recommended from mm-hmm. by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. So it, you can just have that um, conversation then with whoever you're seeing and say, actually, I know you've been giving me acupuncture and at times it's worked, at times it hadn't, you know, w- whatever the situation is, but you could say, what do you think about the guidelines? You know, and what, what do you think about, have you considered that? And that mm-hmm. would, for me, when I get people coming in to see me who've either printed out some paperwork or they've said, I've read this, or it can have, it helps with that conversation and it's really welcomed and it should be welcomed mm-hmm. by, by healthcare professionals. The other thing that there is insufficient evidence for is electrotherapy. Right. Now, yeah. Now, tens is what we call TENS. Yeah, so TENS stands for transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Um, But there are other things like ultrasound therapy. Okay, so therapeutic ultrasound um, and other things like laser therapy or interferential therapy. But it all comes under an umbrella of electrotherapy. Um, But they have said because of insufficient evidence of benefit, it's basically saying there's not enough evidence to say that if we treat enough people with this, that they're, they're going to get benefit. Right. Whereas for conditions like weight loss and exercise, there is good evidence to say if we treat a certain amount of people, the majority wow. will get benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's about. It's about having informed practices because nobody really wants to be doing something for a condition, not knowing that there's, if there's no evidence to get it better. You see what I mean? Because yeah. it just doesn't make sense. So yeah. Um, so that is really what what um, they think about those two areas. Now, um, I know having worked, I've worked both privately and in, in you know in the NHS. I'm predominantly in the NHS though throughout my career. Um, acupuncture has been used in different different areas, you know, and it, and it still is used for different for different conditions, um, but certainly not now for osteoarthritis. And electrotherapy, I think, has has had more of a resounding, uh, you know fall from out of out of out of being a favorite in the past but again this is what we want to see in medicine we want to see um reviews of the current treatments critique of the current treatment Mm. and then ultimately it influences best practice for patients yeah you want things to be evidenced you don't want to be trying something that actually there is no evidence for so Yeah. yeah so um the last uh, last couple of things just to talk about in this um, non-pharmacological management. So one of them is walking aids. So right. walking aids such as walking sticks or Nordic walking poles or, you know, relator, uh, you know, um, oh, the frames that I love, the four-wheeled walkers with a seat that you can right. put a brake on. Um, but I'll tell you a story, actually. So interestingly, a lot of people will say, I don't want a walking stick. You know, I, I don't want I don't want a walking aid. And and what I've seen in my experience is that people say that because they've got a, a connotation of this makes me look a certain way or, or this is me actually, um, you know, maybe giving in and I'm now needing a support um, rather than changing that mindset to say this is going to enable you to walk more comfortably. Actually, if you're walking with a limp for too long, the pain that you have in your knee it's likely to affect other joints and other parts of the body. So if you're walking with a stick and you could re-educate that walk, um, that normal stride, get rid of that limp, then actually that's going to be better for your whole body. Um, yeah. But but Mel, I, I was just sharing a family, you know, a family thing with myself. I, I actually bought 
um, not a stick, but a, a, a four-wheeled walker for my, um, my grandmother, actually. She was, uh, at the time, she was in her 70s and uh, she had um, some different conditions, one of which was osteoarthritis, but some issues in her, in her back. And I remember buying this for her thinking, with my physio hat on particularly, this will be great for her. You know, she can get, keep, get out, she can walk further, she can have a break on the way to the shops, things like that. Uh, but it was met with the opposite. <laughs> she hated it. She hated it. And uh, not directly to me, but through my father, she told me <laughs> that she wasn't happy with that. But again, when we digged into that, it was because she was viewing that as, oh, am I getting older? Yeah. You know, am I slowing up? Rather than seeing this is has the potential to increase your independence, you know. Yeah. It was obviously coming from a place of love. It's a stigma, but... isn't it? It's a stigma it, it of being seen to be, you know, not fully functional. And and for some people, that's a huge barrier to using these useful things, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I think, well, with time, she did use it and actually found that she was it able helped. to, it, you know, it was able to help her and she was able to remain as active as possible. And I think ultimately it's much better to see somebody out walking or, or moving in some way with an aid mm. rather than them being isolated and not being able to do that. So yeah, so that's uh, it's just a funny story from my my family. But the last thing then to say in terms of devices um, are things like um, so insoles and, and braces and, and splints. Mm. So these come under some more devices that are often considered, but unless somebody has obvious joint instability, so this is something that would be assessed with, with clinicians like myself, or a real abnormal, what they call abnormal biomechanical uh, loading. So again, with joint changes, it can change the shape of the joints, which can mm. then actually affect what's called the, the biomechanics and how the forces travel from the ground up through the body, for instance. So unless somebody has those quite significant changes and unless somebody has therapeutic exercise that is ineffective or unsuitable. So again, it's almost like they've tried that and it's, it's not, not working. Then essentially we're told not to routinely offer insoles and braces and things like that. So, so no knee braces and things like that then? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So unless there's instability or significant abnormal biomechanical loading, mm. And we wouldn't be giving people and, and we're talking these, you know, heavy duty braces, you know, yeah. with the with the bars perhaps down the sides or, or the straps, the knee. Right. So things to my understanding, it doesn't mean things like tubi grip, for instance, a soft, you know, that soft slide on yeah. knee support, things like that. That's not necessarily a, a brace. That's a, a knee, a, a gentle knee support, my understanding with that. But but again, insoles and things uh, shouldn't be routinely offered now. I know that if we've got, we're going to have people listening to this who are saying, well, hang on, I had these things and they were fantastic. And I'll have clinicians, uh, particularly physiotherapists and podiatrists, you know, who are going, I know that the things I give out or the things I signpost people to help. And this is where I would say in this category as well, we have to be mindful that these are guidelines and best practice guidelines that we want to follow through with. But again, people are individual and um, yeah. If somebody, you know, had these changes before, then then it might be something to reflect upon. Always there. exceptions to the rules, isn't there? Yeah, I think, uh, that, well, there's going to be, you know, there's always going to be. Um, but I think if we're trying hard to work to best practice we can give and use this as a guide, then that's that's a good way forward. 
Absolutely. This is all really interesting, Chris. I think there's a lot of information here that we're sharing today. So I'm going to suggest that maybe we take a little break, allow people to have a little break and come back in part two and talk about the rest of it. What do you think? Sounds like a good plan, Mel. Let's do that. Okay, great. Thanks to Chris for sharing all that information with us. And please do come back for part two, where we'll continue talking our way through the nice osteoarthritis guidelines. Hi again. This is a great moment to pop the kettle on and have a quick stretch. And while you're doing it, we'd be really grateful if you would consider donating £5 to Bird to help support our programme and these information podcasts. All you'd need to do is text BIRD to 70460. This will cost £5 plus your standard rate message. Thank you.